Hi, I'm Michael Croker, and this is Park Life. I've worked in the Australian theme park industry for a little over 30 years, and in this podcast series, I spend time in conversation with the people inside the business of making memories. Thanks for joining me. I hope you can subscribe, rate, and review. Enjoy the ride. Eddie Idick has fond memories of growing up and visiting Wonderland Sydney theme park, or Australia's Wonderland as it was originally known. At the time, the park was the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. Eddie would eventually go on to work in security for the site, before transforming his professional life after the park's eventual closure in April 2004. During our conversation, you will hear me suggest that for the Sydney region, there was no other park of its kind. Of course, this was not entirely the case, as Luna Park continues to operate at Milsons Point, just as it has since 1935. But for the western region of Sydney, Wonderland truly did stand alone. Today, Eddie is both the director of the Vital Protection Group and the chair of the New South Wales chapter of ASIS International. We had a little time together recently in Sydney and caught up to discuss some of his Wonderland journey and beyond. We know each other from some of the Wonderland Sydney years and we'll, we'll certainly go there in a moment, but can you tell us right now what it is you're doing and what roles that you have under your belt? Because there's more than just one. Surely, Michael, I just want to uh, give you an idea of what we do in regards to the array of services that we offer with my businesses. Now, I run a company or a security firm that involves security, emergency management processes, in other words, having security personnel and providing emergency management consulting to major corporations, including theme parks, also being um, one of our clients, and major convention centers, exhibition centers, hotels, and we also provide a bit of training behind that, which includes first aid. And you're based in Sydney? We are based in Sydney, but we provide Australia-wide services. And you also have a, a vital role with ASIS. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. ASIS International is one of the largest security associations globally with 35,000 members. We currently have a chapter in Sydney or New South Wales, and I'm the current chair for that chapter in 2021. I have been in past office roles, including secretary and deputy chair, but now in 2021, we've taken uh, the chair position, which is a, a quite a bit of a, a task in itself, considering that you know, we have a business to run as well, including the three other enterprises that we have at the same time. What does ASIS do in terms of representation? Who is it representing specifically? So it represents all the major security uh, personnel in Australia for the Australian chapter, of course, or the Australian branch. Um, the whole region and we provide support to security professionals that we also provide education opportunities, uh, certifications for international certified protection professional certifications which are globally recognized. Uh, we also have personal development and most importantly networking within the association membership. Let's go back in time where we first met. That was at Wonderland Sydney which was formerly Australia's Wonderland. And it was at the time the largest park in the Southern Hemisphere, which is something that often is forgotten. It was an expansive park and it was an impressive site for the time that it was in operation, I think for a little over 15 years. When did you, were you a Sydney boy born and bred and did you grow up while that park was in operation? I was and being a Western Sydney's boy, um, I grew up in the Western suburbs and luckily <coughs> the theme park wasn't too far away from my house. I did take a gamble. I mean, I came from the hospitality industry, 
when I was quite younger in concierge roles in food and beverage and restaurants, and I always wanted to be in the hospitality sector. But then I took a shift and I thought, hey, I need a, another role close to home. And I took a casual role as a security officer in the theme park at Wonderland Sydney in 2000. And I wrote it out till the closure in April 26, 20, sorry, 2004. Great, I started there in 1999 as entertainment manager. So we kind of kicked off our tenure there at the same time. Were you, as you mentioned, you were, were a childhood visitor to the park? I was, and I knew the park pretty well, because at the end of the day, who didn't have a Wonder Pass to go to Wonderland? The Wonder Pass. And yeah. it's unlimited entry through a whole year. So without a doubt, when it came time to buy a new Wonder Pass, the, the role, the, the it thing was to get that Wonder Pass so you can go every weekend. And uh, so I knew the park pretty intimately beforehand. I knew the family vibe and I knew the uh, experience that I would have as an employee there. And I did not hesitate to take that role as a casual security officer, nothing in a leadership role, yeah. but as a casual security officer to feel the vibe or that family uh, vibe within the theme park. Can we kind of explain to people what that park meant, particularly to locals in the Western Sydney region? Because it was an iconic park in its time and it is a park that is still dearly loved by locals who had memories of it. And for the time that it did run, we can't underestimate just how impressive it was. You know, it had the intellectual property in park initially of Hanna-Barbera. During my tenure with the park, we introduced Hasbro, Marvel Comics, DreamWorks, and it was a really exciting time for those new brands. Can you give us an idea, what was Wonderland like in those years as a kid? Do you have memories of walking around, big rides, themed lands? Any memories that stick out? Look, the biggest thing for me was Yogi. <laughs> Yogi's Playland, Yogi's characters, and, and the characters walking around the park. Hanna-Barbera Land was a big one for me as a child. Um, and that had, the, I guess, the smaller rides for children, uh, including the smaller ro roller coasters, the Beastie, as they called the wooden roller coaster, which was miniature size, versus the, the ultimate Bush Beast, which was the large one for adults. But I do remember um, hesitating going on those rides because it was quite scary for a seven-year-old. <coughs> and um, going up all the way through my teenage years, and there was never a time where we didn't have a Wonder Pass. Uh, my parents didn't, weren't financially very fit at the time and they weren't very secure financially. So <coughs> having a Wonder Pass meant that they can get the kids out of the house to somewhere that's quite fun, keep them occupied, but with a limited budget as well. It's great childhood <laughs> memories of being in a theme park, isn't it? Because Absolutely. It's filled with colour, noise and sound. When you started working at the park and you were there till the park's closure, how was it for you from a security perspective? What do people not know about what security is involved with from a theme park perspective that you would give some insight into? It's funny you ask that because Every time I present, even to this day, with my keynotes or with general conversations about security operations and the technical side of security, and even when it comes to um, management and when it comes to operation processes, everything that I learned in my career as security, the foundation started in that theme park because mm -hmm. of the diversity in regards to the incidents that could occur the investigations that were involved in. And it wasn't just a family theme park. There were incidents that were happening there where medical response was required, where we had to put on our first aid caps. There were incidents where there was fights, there was arguments, there was robbery, there was uh, various different property damages. So there was an array of different incidents that would occur that kind of set the foundation for my future in the security industry. Um, 
which gave me a bit of a, a broad kind of overview of the industry, learning those techniques at one land that I can now instill with my existing staff, my existing contracts, whether it be in New South Wales or Australia-wide. What does it take from a security perspective to keep a park that was that big, as I mentioned earlier, the largest theme park in the Southern Hemisphere at the time? What does it take for a security team working in a theme park like that to keep it secure? Adaptability would be probably the, the word because you will need to adapt to different incidents that happen regularly. Because if you're coming from a different background of security, you could be a specialist in maybe uh, cash in transit, you might be a specialist in close protection, you might be a specialist in security operations. But moving into a theme park where they have their own banks, mm. considering in the theme park, uh, we've got an array of different tasks that are required for security personnel and learning to differentiate and adapt to what the different requirements are for security in a theme park is probably the most important thing that any security team. That's definitely something that I've taken away and the diversity of the culture, the incidents and the requirements have really set the benchmark uh, for what I do these days. Because I guess security for a theme park is, and you're suggesting this also, right? It's like managing a, a little community. It's a contained community. You know, there's various age groups all working together and they're all in their tribes located at different points through the park. And as you mentioned, there's effectively banks built into the structure because there's a lot of cash moving through. And then you've got the added, uh, I guess, responsibility of manage, managing all those guests coming through. And then you've got perimeter securing as well. And it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business. Correct. I remember one event we did, and I think we must have spent six months in prep because it was the first and only time in my 30 years of theme parks where we did a 24-hour rave event. Yes. And I can't remember the name of the it was event. It's called Utopia. Utopia. There you go. That's exactly what it was. I'd forgotten. But I remember I worked that shift for the entire 24 hours. I was 29 at the time. And we were all a pretty young management team then and thought, we'll, we'll, we'll smash this through. And I can remember the chaos of uh, the numbers of people coming through. And it was obviously a very teen-heavy audience. And we set up, you probably seem to have a clearer memory of this than I do, but we set up themed rave precincts. So over here was your classic house. Over here was more industrial beats. And over here was a chill zone where it was more ambient stuff so that you could make your way through the park and get a different musical vibe going. That obviously attracted a particular crowd and it attracted a crowd that cycled through over several hours. And I remember in the morning how the park looked and, I, and how the car park looked. And I remember in the post analysis, it was agreed you know what, we'll probably never do that again. <laughs> so without going into the graphic detail, it was a big learning experience of really straining the resources and stretching the capabilities of your people to run a 24-hour event like that. And again, your memories may be clearer than mine are. How was that event from a security perspective for you? What kind of learnings do you take out of mass gathering management with well, that, something like that? That was a learning curve for me because having 13,000 young ravers coming to a theme park with the rides operating while they're drinking, that was a bit of a struggle for us because we had over 100 security officers on that right. evening. 
or during the day as well. And I mean, I, the first thing I remember would be the lineup at the front of the theme park. I was there working it. I remember it. I think there was up to about 13 <laughs> ticker yeah. boxes yeah. running and we had queues that were no less than 100 meters each. Um, we had security officers planted at every single access point, yeah. ready to screen. We also had, would you believe, amnesty bins. Now, if, wow. if, if people don't understand what amnesty bins are, is they were bins put before you get to the security screening point to give you the opportunity to throw your illicit substances, including drugs, into, or the paraphernalia, into those bins before you get to a security screening checkpoint, and that way at least you won't get in trouble by the law. We did have police on site. We call that user pay police, where you hire the police to be on site for a major event or a mass gathering event, uh, which they can uh, pretty much provide us a bit more resources at a higher level just in case we need it. There wasn't really great metal detection technology, yeah. which like there is now like Metrosense or uh, various airport style uh, checkpoints. Yeah. So we were kind of just kind of hand wanding every single person coming through, checking bags real quickly and sending them through. Nothing like what we do these days with technology. One of the biggest ones were also the major arenas where they have the m most amount of people in, in those rave areas and people were uh, dropping like flies in oh. regards to dehydration, yeah. uh, not drinking enough water. How was it for you when Wonderland closed? What did, what did that mean for you personally and professionally? And when was that? That was in April 26, 2004, which I remember vividly. And it was probably the saddest day in most of the theme park staff's career um, because we really did live and breathe Wonderland. I mean, to give you a bit of an example, I would turn up on my days off to attend the site because of the vibe. And for me, it was quite sad because that's all we knew and lived and breathed every single day. And for all my colleagues that I see to this day, say the same thing, that, that the theme park industry is probably one of the best industries we've ever worked in. Mm. And if there was another wonderland that opens up, we would definitely go back to it. And unfortunately, nothing has ever met that level of entertainment, family vibe, and diversity in uh, a workplace. We as should well. mention too, at the time, Wonderland Sydney, Australia's Wonderland, was the only theme park in the Sydney region. It wasn't a Gold Coast Queensland hub where there were parks in close proximity that were competing for your attention. This was the park. Mm. And if you were coming out from the CBD or the North Shore, wherever it might be, it could be a bit of a hike. So then it had largely become a locals park Correct. in the, the, the Penrith hub and surrounding region. And there was a, such a local loyalty base built into that park, which was a big education for us when we came down. I'd left SeaWorld, been there for 13 years, started at Wonderland and had to learn really quickly, ah, this is a very much a regional park. Mm -hmm. It's a park that our CEO at the time was wanting to drive into a broader market. But I think for my own level of awareness, the education for us was, ah, this is a locals park. Uh, don't set the sites too high uh, into other territories when that local basin is already here waiting to be reinvigorated. And I would talk to locals when I was living out that way. And people talked about the park like it was a, a family thing. You know, they would say, you know, my wonderland, and I used to go there when this, and I used to go there when that. And it was referred to as, you know, my park. So I think when it did close its doors, that meant a lot to the locals, right? Absolutely. Look, Western Sydney, I mean, I grew up there most of my life. And 
on a positive note, that's where you would go. Mm. On a negative side of things, in the area of the demographic that it was in, you'd attract a lot of people that weren't so, I guess, pleasant as well. A lot of criminal activity in the area. Um, the suburbs around, surrounding the park were known for break and enters, right. vehicles being damaged, stolen, and it had that stigma around the area. Right. But um, getting to one land wasn't too hard either because you've had the, you had the shuttle buses transport from the local train station yeah. that would go there regularly. And we had a specific team set up <coughs> that was familiar with the parks, so the more the in-house team rather than contracted security to be able to respond to major incidents throughout the whole park. And I was actually part of that team that led that tango team, they called it. And right. we had about six people on, six or seven people on that team that would respond to only major incidents yep. to de-escalate and I guess um, stop whatever was happening, diffuse the situation. When that park was reaching its final days and you had to reevaluate what Eddie does, who he is and where he can continue to grow, what was that process like for you in, in terms of reinvention? <laughs> Funny you say that because <laughs> I was still stuck at the park until they offloaded most of the equipment that right. was ready for sale. And I remember um, Neil Farquharson was also uh, CFO. CFO. Yeah. He was um, part of the uh, process of offloading all the assets. Yeah. And we're there to protect the assets that were still there that haven't been sold. So we're still kind of hanging around for another, say, six months, which was great. But then at the same time, it was quite sad seeing the park being pulled apart. And before guess, your eyes. Yeah, that, yeah, that left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth and a, and a sadness to, to a certain degree. So from there onwards, um, we, I was then headhunted by the Hilton group and I was um, moved to launch the Hilton Sydney and totally different sector in security. And obviously you're going to be diverse which, in the industry that you go to. And this was accommodation. So same principle still applied about protecting people and assets. But it wasn't that same family vibe that we had in a theme park with colour and, you know, giving back to families mm. and all about entertaining and putting a smile on people's faces and keeping that smile. The accommodation sector was a bit more cold, if you will, because everyone's there to stay overnight and they're gone the next day. Whereas theme parks, you would see regular faces, common people come back, they, re they remember your name, you remember theirs. Mm. So it made a bit of a homely feel. So from the uh, Hilton chain, I moved on, I was actually asked to move on to convention exhibition centers, which was my new found, I guess, passion. Since there was not too many theme parks to go to anymore mm. in Sydney, besides our Luna Park, but that uh, was not obviously anywhere near comparison to what we were used to. And a bit out of the way as well for me personally. But the convention exhibition side opened up a new platform for learning for me because of the corporate feel rather than the family vibe. So with conventions, corporate exhibitions, um, you've had major government bodies coming through for events, preparations for this bit more detail with your security experience coming to risk assessments, threat assessments, liaising with local intelligence organizations to prepare for a major government event that's gonna have major um, uh, government heads from all around the world mm. coming through and leaders and preparing for that. So, I mean, it was still security, it was still protecting people, and still protecting assets, but at a different level, if you will. And that kind of took me to management of convention exhibitions, um, spaces in arenas, stadiums at the same time. So my, my passion then turned to major mass gathering uh, venues, 
But in saying that, the foundation was laid in theme parks because mm -hmm. we had that mass gathering already, yeah. that experience already, managing crowds, queuing, um, safety, response, all those principles were copy and pasted over to major venues and stadiums as well at the same time. And that's where I found my niche. That's where I moved to a different level of security. I wasn't just a security guard. I was a security officer now. And from a security officer, I moved into management. I was a manager now. I was uh, not just a manager, then a director. So the scalable part of the industry, everyone thinks that if you're a security officer, you're, you're that stigma standing at a door collecting tickets. But in this, in this concept, we move into a, an area where I'm now managing 75 to 80 uh, security personnel. And that could be from frontline management staff to the security casual guard that's standing at a door for a major corporate event. How do you reinvent yourself in a way like that successfully? Because a lot of people, particularly in the year that we've just had, have had to confront reinvention of self professionally, personally. And that transition is not always easy. So how did you make that transition from being the, the, the guy you just described as, oh, you're the guy that's collecting tickets or you're hard-nosing people at the door to mm -hmm. a venue. How do you transition out of that to be, well, I'm now going to be more of an executive-based, managerial-based uh, coordinator administrator? Was that trajectory for you very difficult? Not really, because I knew I had to have a bit of, or a sense of humility at the same time and say, I don't know how to do that managerial task. I don't know how to do that supervisor task. I don't know how to lead teams. And that took me on to a different aspect of education, learning about security in depth, taking your studies to a tertiary level of not just doing a licensing course, but moving into a more, say, uh, a diploma or a degree or a master's in the field of security, not just operations, but intelligence and, and various facets of security that you can put together and go, you know what, I think I'm ready to move up. And education, hanging around the right people, networking with the right people, I think is a good recipe like a cake with its milk and the eggs and the powders that create an amazing cake. You can't have one without the other, so without the egg it's not gonna rise, right? So you need the right ingredients. And putting that analogy into security and moving into management, yes, the foundations of that security process of knowing your patrols, knowing how to monitor security systems, accessing security, CCTV footage, understanding um, swipe card programming, I mean, all the, all the frontline stuff. And then you gotta move into the, the business aspect and understanding financials and budgets and, and understanding how much money we've got to spend on a specific project and capital expenditure for that year. And I kind of learned all this stuff in my tertiary education, but more importantly, on the job training of that particular industry is what took me to the next level because I wanted it. Mm -hmm. The passion was there to grow. Um, and if you're, not, if you're not willing to be humble, have humility and say that I don't know and, and try to make it by faking it, that's going to come undone eventually. Yeah, well articulated. I've often said in a previous episode that similarly when we're talking about such things that to be allowing yourself to truly grow and be educated does require a certain degree of humility, I think, because the humility allows you to open up and understand these are things I don't understand. <laughs> and then by acknowledging that, there's opportunity to broaden the knowledge and expand on the knowledge that you already have inside. But if you go in locked up, this is just what I know. Nothing can get in. See, I guess as human beings, 
our ego takes uh, frontline charge mm. of saying, hey, well, of course I know how to do that tasks. We're not going to take the Richard Branson approach by saying, absolutely, yes, and then kind of learn quickly to get to that level. Um, in security, that could be catastrophic. Right. Maybe in business, different story, yeah. right? But in, in a security um, environment within mass gathering venues, whether it be theme parks or event centers or whether it may be arenas, yeah. it really is the experience, the humility and understanding and saying, hey, I don't know these tasks, I want to learn. And that's pretty much how my roadmap started in regards to getting to that managerial level, was understanding each step-by-step -step level, getting a lot of feedback from upper management um, and then moving to those roles with with confidence because some management, would you believe, especially in this, this sector, are kind of thrown in by default into those roles and they would come back and say, hey, I don't know what to do. Where do I start? Who do I see? Um, I don't think this is right for me because out of desperation and recruitment and not successfully recruiting for that position, they've been defaulted into that position and unfortunately has had catastrophic effects so what I'm trying to say is step by step is the key and that's how I grew in regards to my uh, managerial level in the security operations and always being curious as well mm. always being there always showing up whether it be a networking event whether it be a staff meeting whether it be a gathering of, of professionals even though I might not have anything to say I had time to listen though and that's, how, that's pretty much how I grew. Where did that come from? Were you mentored along the way? Was there anyone that was in your corner? Because I don't get the feeling that you've got anyone there in those formative years being a champion for your cause. Or were you simply backing you? No, I was actually backing me. Yeah. And until the point where I got to the Hilton, I was, I was alone. And it really was all the frontline experience that got me to where I needed to get to. When I go into the convention space, I did have a mentor who was my manager at the time, which is one of the, one of the most amazing managers I've had, who kind of gave me the leverage or the rope to say, hey, we need to achieve X, but you're gonna start from A, and I want you to take it at your speed and learn. So it wasn't too much on top of saying, hey, listen, I need you to do this every single day, and on top of me trying to give me tasks or targets. From that experience, I got to learn personally as well myself as a person and professionally. If you could tell me, when you look back, is there a moment that sticks out for you as a really proud moment? Is there, I'm sure there's probably multiple, but in your professional life, is there a moment you look back on and go, I'm really proud of that? I think the most important time in my career would have been a transition from when I was about to resign. <laughs> And uh, I got to a point where I was recruited as a frontline supervisor in a mass gathering venue. And the night shifts and day shifts of security really took its toll on my health and personal life. And I thought to myself, I don't think I can do this anymore. So I walked in and I had a lot of motivation for this role and, and I really did put 100% in. And I walked into the office one day to my manager and said, hey, how are you going? This is my resignation and everything started crumbling around the manager's office. In other words, why are you going? You cannot go, we need you here. I said, look, my health's taken its toll and I, and I really just don't think the night shifts and day shifts and all these kind of, I really wanted a Monday or Friday, to tell you the truth, just to get back to normality or some sort of normality, because in security that's not the case. Mm. And he offered me in 24 hours <coughs> a wholly newly created position 
specific to keep me within that organisation, which was a trainer role for the department for uh, Monday to Friday. And would you believe that's how I got to where I had to get to as a uh, manager in that role because he allowed me to fly. And from that day forward, I would never forget that. Yeah. Good gesture. But allowing your staff to spread their wings and not just crush them mm. every single time mm. will allow them to grow much faster than you think. Problem is, a lot of our managerial techniques are very micromanaged, not macromanaged. Mm. Mm. So they kind of hold on to the growth factor too much and don't allow their staff to spread their wings. And in this case, he did. And I'll never forget that. And that's how I've, I've, I became in the management team. And one of the proudest moments would be things like organising some of the biggest events within Australia, liaising with major org event organisers mm. from overseas. Uh, one of those events are Amazon. One of those events are also called uh, Cybos, some of the biggest financial events globally. Um, and you have people descending onto the convention centre with 15,000 delegates from around the world. Wow. You can just imagine <coughs> how much that adds to the local economy yeah. with hotels, restaurants, and convention centres, mass gathering venues like our theme parks, they just add to the local economy by investing in hotels, restaurants outside the precincts. Um, and people don't realise this. Mm. So with major mass gathering venues, entertainment centres, you see the, the flow-on effect mm. in the precinct. Yeah. And theme parks are just a good example of that. <coughs> what gets you <coughs> motivated and up and out of bed, what's the juice for you? Well, it's funny, you know, one person said to me previously, if you're not dancing when you wake up in the morning, then you're doing the wrong job. Hmm. And, and, I, and I learned that early in the piece. And working in convention centers did make me dance in the mornings when I wake up. Because every time I waked up, it was like, okay, I'm ready for the day. <clears throat> and I would say that was probably my standout moment would be love what you do, love where you work. And if you're not loving where you work, you're in the wrong position or in the wrong profession. Mm -hmm. It's terrific. What's ahead with where you are right now? If you look ahead, what's the next thing for you? My business at the moment is an array of facility management, if you will. Mm. For me personally, it's growth with my networks. And I do that with chairing associations. I do that with my network uh, globally, with assisting other associations. At the moment, we're helping uh, various associations with ASIS in Israel, Turkey, Middle East, and America. For those chapters that are struggling, I put my hat forward to assist them to develop their chapters with membership, with guidelines, with uh, procedures in ensuring that the next person that comes on the, uh, with the uh, board that they know exactly what their tasks need to be. So these are chapters that aren't really active and they're not, they don't have a large membership. And because we are the largest membership and the largest association chapter in the Asia Pacific region, I figured if we've got the resources, why not help others? And I think my passion at the moment is to build others uh, in the chapters uh, globally and I guess to put my name out there as well at the same time, because at the end of the day, you only get out what you put in, right? Mm. And a wise man said to me, you'll only get out of this chapter what you put in, and now I'm putting in, I'm, I'm paying my dues. So, not just so I can get recognized, but just so I can help others. And I think, mm. you know, when people say to you, what do you do? 
in your career or what do you do for a living in a short statement I would say things like I teach others to save lives whether that be first aid training whether it be emergency management training teach people how to evacuate people um, but in a short statement is I teach others how to save lives and that could also relate to security yeah. whether it be in venues theme parks etc we protect people and assets and that is your core uh, when it comes to security yeah. and operations people assets reputation fantastic it's been a hell of a ride for you in a relatively short amount of years and it seems like the wonderland experience laid the base down on which you've built a pretty impressive career since absolutely and that's one experience i'll never forget and theme parks if i could do it all over again i think i would but unfortunately in Sydney at the moment, we're not, we're, not, we're not blessed with the theme parks like they do in the Gold Coast. Who knows, maybe one day. Never know. Maybe one day. Eddie, thanks for taking time out and sharing some of your journey here on Park Life. Thank you very much, Michael. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode. You'll find Park Life on Twitter and me, Michael Croker, on Instagram at Mike underscore Croker. See you next time.